Welcome to the Advancing Dentistry Podcast. Join us for in-depth discussions from industry-leading dental experts speaking on hot topics in their specialties. This is Dr. Stephen John, your host for this presentation. Thank you for joining us. For those of us who remember when dental implants first came into the dental market, we were told that dental implants were superior to the natural tooth, that they were not subject to the same disease process as the natural tooth, and that they will last forever. In fact, I even remember them telling me that calcus does not form on titanium. And all out fairness, this is pretty accurate statement. It says there were really not a lot of implants out there, either placed in the oral cavity or I've been out for very long. But as time progressed and more dental implants were placed, as more implant companies began to, began to enter into the dental market, and as more dentists were placing implants, we started seeing not only an increase in the short-term placement loss, but the long-term placement loss. This new problem sent dentists scrambling to try to find answers on how to treat this peri-implant mucositis and peri-implantitis. From this panic, there emerged a group of forward-thinking surgeons who spent their time addressing the etiology of the problem. From this information, they were able to concentrate more on the prevention of this condition, better management of the dental implant, and early intervention of peri-implant mucositis to prevent the advancement of the disease. Lasers at different wavelengths became an obvious adjunct to therapy to peri-implant mucositis. One of the early and progressive thinking surgeons on the subject was Dr. Jay Resnick. We're extremely fortunate to have Dr. Jay Resnick with us today to share with us his findings on prevention, managing, and early treatment. Dr. Resnick earned his dental degree from Tufts University in Boston and his MD degree from the University of Southern California. Dr. Resnick did his internship in general surgery at Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena and trained in oral and maxillofacial surgery at Los Angeles County and USC Medical Center. Dr. Resnick founded the Southern California Center of Oral and Facial Surgery in 2008 and has been in practice in Encino, Tarzana area since 1992. Dr. Resnick is among the first doctors to adopt fully guided, prosthetically driven implant surgery. As the first specialist in the United States to implement 3D imaging, computer-aided design, and manufacturing of dental restorations, he has immense experience utilizing the state-of-the-art treatment modalities. Dr. Resnick has been treating snoring and sleep apnea for over 25 years, utilizing the latest surgical and non-surgical techniques. He has extensive publications in professional dental and medical literature. He founded the educational website, onlineoralsurgery.com. He frequently lectures at dental meetings and conferences and provides live training courses on dental implants and 3D technology to dentists all over the world. Dr. Resnick, thank you very much for joining us today. It is quite an honor to have you here. And thanks again for, for taking time off and a really busy day to spend time to, to kind of go over a few things with the listeners. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks, Steve. I, you know, I really appreciate you inviting me to join you. Um, I understand I'm the first oral surgeon that's been uh, interviewed on this podcast. And so uh, uh, I feel especially honored to, to be here. 
Yeah, I got to tell you, when we were looking around to, uh, to invite some oral surgeons, your name popped up quite quite a few times. So it, it really is an honor to have you uh, uh, presenting with us and speaking with us and just kind of getting a general conversation about kind of lasers in uh, oral surgery and dentistry, too. So um, oh, with that in mind, if you don't mind, can we just go ahead and kind of get started a little bit? I would, Sure, why not? Uh, first would be is uh, through the years that you've been in practice, what trends have you seen in technology? In other words, that um, in regarding the, the treatment options that you have in advancing your career, has there been certain technologies that you've seen kind of progress and advance as we've gone along? Um, have you also felt that there's been a, um, a, a um, an increase in the idea and concept of minimally invasive therapy, um, very much similar to, I guess I'd say, in medicine? Well, you know, I think when I was in dental school, uh, the only technology we had was uh, uh, film x-rays. <laughs> and things have changed a lot since then. Um, you know, definitely our imaging capabilities. Uh, you know, we now routinely use 3D imaging for not just planning dental implants, but also for looking for pathology, trying to figure out where that uh, mysterious toothache is coming from. Uh, as well as in implantology, where we can merge, uh, as you mentioned, CAD CAM with cone beam CT information, do prosthetically driven implant planning, and then use a surgical guide to uh, place the implant precisely where you plant it. And then, of course, there's the, the uh, robotics that are, have been designed for uh, implant placement, too, that have changed the game for, for a lot of surgeons. Um, laser wasn't, I don't think that was anything that was around when I was in dental school, or at least I don't remember. Or, I mean, as dental students, um, we had to have like, uh, three faculty, faculty signatures just to uh, use the cautery. And, uh, <laughs> so I think I used it once in dental school and, um, you know, through, through the years, I've seen more and more innovations when I was start when I was in my residency and we did anesthesia, uh, for four months, we did not have. Uh, routinely, pulse oximeters, automatic blood pressure cuffs, end tidal CO2 measurements. Um, a lot of the drugs we have now, we were using pentothal for some patients um, and Valium and Demerol, and that was kind of what we had. Now we've got much better drugs. We've got much better ways of monitoring anesthesia. Um, we don't have to use mallets and chisels to take out <laughs> teeth anymore and do surgery. We've got high-speed, high-torque hand pieces. So really, wherever you look, um, dentistry has has really advanced, and of course now we have you know three D milling and three D printing, uh, which is how I get my surgical guides. I print them in the office, and so nothing that I do now is the way that I learned in dental school. Just about, I mean, some things, but uh, a lot of it has changed so much. And uh, so I've always been kind of on on top of the technology thing. For some reason, I've you know, I've, I like technology. Um, in uh, college, I never took a computer class. Um, I remember, you know, seeing my fraternity brothers leaving the house at like two o'clock in the morning. So they go to the computer lab and uh, run their punch cards through. And I said, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to learn about computers. I don't have no need. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, and then of course, what happens in dental school I'm sitting watching uh, the 1984 um, uh, Super Bowl, and I see that ad for Macintosh, that first ad. And I went out and I bought in at 1985, I bought my very first 
Mac computer. And I actually used it to keep track of all my school credits to make sure that I was getting all the credits I was supposed to. And that kind of started started me off with getting into technology. I mean, I have, I've had CO2 laser in the practice since like 1998, I think. Um, you know, I went fully computerized with my uh uh, with my office uh, with scheduling and billing and all that uh, way back then. Um, whenever something new comes out that kind of piques my interest, um, I check it out and see, is this something that's going to work in my practice? And uh, most of them have paid off. Most of them, most of them have been uh, really good decisions. Um, as far as, you know, the minimally, minimally invasive, it's a little, a little more difficult um, when we're talking um, about, dental compared to medical, because we're not really going into body cavities and going, looking under the skin, but uh, certainly in the realm of oral surgery, um, having ways to actually stick a scope up salivary gland ducts uh, has been, uh, you know, I, 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 I haven't bought one of those scopes yet. I think they're pretty expensive and I don't know anybody that has one, but when I learned about that technology, that was something that I thought was really uh, would really come in handy. Um, and then, you know, guided implant surgery, uh, being able to do um, when you have enough bone, when you have enough keratinized gingiva at your uh, site that you're going to place an implant, being able to place an implant with nothing more than a little tissue punch and then a few very accurately guided drills and then placing the implant you know, patients come back and say, you know, I didn't even take an Advil afterwards. It was, it's like nothing ever happened. And, you know, back when I have to do, you know, lay a flap and move tissue around or I have to add bone or whatever it may be, obviously patients have a lot more discomfort. So I think that's one of the big things in uh, dentistry as far, as far as being minimally invasive is being able to use that technology to make um, implant surgery uh, more, much more um uh, conservative and uh, much gentler to the tissues and much less traumatic. And same thing, you know, in dental instruments. Um, and remember some of the techniques I learned to take out teeth um, when I was in residency in dental school. Uh, and now we have atraumatic extraction techniques um, that are much less invasive using PAs and surgery um, and other technologies. And I think it's just going to mushroom. It's just going to mushroom over time. I think a lot of the advancements is fun. it's funny what you mentioned about the uh, the beginning because I, I mean way back when I think oral surgery you know they were like just kind of open it up you know you just had a few instruments you kind of take it yeah. flap it break it yeah everything else like that and everything has become a lot more mainstream like you said more computer generated yeah um, and I think that of all the different uh, specialties in dentistry I mm. think oral surgery has really gained the most by this technology. Mm. Um, it's funny because the idea of, uh, of implants, I guess when for implants first came out, uh, you know, I don't think that most uh, oral surgeons or peridons really view themselves as, uh, as taking these little tiny components and uh, putting them together. Uh, you know, we're just more or less uh, do the surgery. Now all of a sudden yeah. we're doing like what, uh, what um, um, surgeons or, or the orthopedic surgeons are doing. Uh, yeah. It's, so it has quite an advanced quite a bit. It's kind yeah. of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, by, you know, I remember putting in staple implants in my <laughs> residency and taking out subperiosteal implants. Um, those, you know, they were sometimes very invasive. And then kind of the the single tooth implant or multi tooth implants were done by all these, you know, these cowboy implantologists in the 
in the 60s and 70s. And so it wasn't really part of mainstream dentistry, just a few people out there doing those things. And of course, in you know, 19, was it 1985 when Brandemark published his studies, that started to bring dental implants into mainstream uh, dentistry. And when I, of course, when I first learned um, implantology, uh, we took a panoramic radiograph at our 25% magnification ruler. <laughs> um, we, <laughs> we flapped open the area. We put the implants where it looked like there was enough bone and we closed everything back up. And, you know, hopefully uh, the restorative dentist could actually do something with what we did. And, you know, that's a, uh, that's a whole nother story. I think that's why guided implant surgery is so critical, not um, just for uh, GPs to get accurate implant placement, uh, but it's based on a prosthetic uh, plan, your final product. And, you know, I think oral surgeons are just figuring out that one of the things you can do to help your practice is to make sure your implants are, are always in the right spot. Because um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my colleagues have this uh, uh, philosophy, oh, I've been doing this for 25 years and every implant I place is, is always perfect. So I don't need, to, I don't need that technology. Well, <laughs> I can tell you, uh, some of them do. So I love the fact that you've been prosthetically driven for a long time. And I think that actually it's funny because the periodontists used to say, oh, yes, well, we're better at go ahead and evaluating for implants because we're more prosthetically oriented. But I'll be honest with you that thank goodness that, that you've you've literally taken this technology earlier in, in your practice mm -hmm. to really become more prosthetic driven. And that's really yeah. what the success is. It's no longer yeah. surgically driven. It's prosthetically driven. Yeah, um, I've been doing this since 2006. Yeah. And uh, so if you have time for the story, yeah, um, go. I was, uh, we have, I have a study club for my practice that we do I think like six times a year. And one of our speakers was a guy by the name of Baldwin Marshak, who's a prosthodontist um, and does a lot of great work and lectures and, and uh, there's a lot of research. And he came and spoke and he started off his lecture showing a video of this elderly Swedish man um, strolling into a dental clinic carrying a large uh, paper shopping bag, round paper bag. And he walks into the clinic, kind of struts along, and then it shows him walking out, um, you know, seconds later with a full mouth of implants and fixed prostheses. It was the, the original Nobel guide teeth in a day. Wow. And when I saw that, it just a light bulb went off. And I said, this is the future of implantology, knowing exactly where the implants need to be placed for the prosthesis, having a guide that will accurately place the implants or help you place the implants in the right spot that's minimally invasive uh, when it can be. And that was great. So um, I kind of waited uh, for Nobel Guide to become approved in the US. And as soon as it did, I jumped on an airplane and went to uh, Chicago and I took uh, Peter Moy's course. He was teaching uh, some of the no first Nobel Guide courses. And um, uh, about a month later, I did my first guided surgery implant case. 16 implants. Wow. Upper, lower, fixed prostheses. And start to finish, it took me three hours. Wow. And the patient came back and said she took a few Advil and that was about it. It's pretty amazing. Like you said, like yeah. you said, got a placement, simple, quick, mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that I think, and truthfully with the CBC guided, 
it's kind of pretty much the standard of care these days. Um, I, yeah. can't, I can't even imagine doing it like a freehand. Matter of fact, even like a simple single tooth implant, mm-hmm. I do them all guided now. Because yeah. it's oh, I do too. I do everything. Yeah, yeah, it's quick and simple and easy to do. And like as you said, I think the whole idea of not only for the fact of, of the, the patient comfort, the patient experience, that is just really kind of expanded kind of the the positive feeling that the patients have getting by by having dentistry done, and especially with oral surgery. But yeah, the patients, patients were, yeah, no. the fear of the oral surgeons now, they don't, they're not fearful any longer. Yeah, I mean, patients really appreciate the technology. And of course, when I bought all these things for my practice, my lasers and the CBCT and the CAD cam and, you know, all the digital imaging and all those things, um, you know, I had to charge patients uh, more than than some of my uh, colleagues in the area. And frequently, you know, they would go doctor shopping and I would explain to them uh, after they'd been to a couple offices or if I came to the, I was the first one why this technology is worth a little bit more because this is what goes into it. I said, rather than the implant being placed freehand by the surgeon guesstimating where it should go, this is based on what your final crown is going to look like from your dentist. The implant is going to be precisely placed. You'll have less swelling, less discomfort. And Patients are like, yeah, I'd rather pay extra money for that than take my chances. So this is kind of a great segue uh, to go into the whole idea of periimplantitis, perimucositis. Um, So from that, um, obviously, we we have implants out there that are are not doing as well. Do you feel that this technology has, I guess, to say, minimized um, your... I don't necessarily call failure, but your problems uh, regarding implants by having this technology. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously the more implants you place and the longer they've been out there, the higher risk of developing uh, periimplantitis. It's like um, uh, I learned in medical school in our, I think in our public health, health class, the older you get, the better your chances of getting something. And so it's the same thing with implants. And I came to to realize that a lot of it had to do with hygiene and recall. And I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it until I bought my water lays. Um, And that was in 2018. So like five, almost six, actually six years ago, early in the year. Um, I would place the implants for the patient. I would see them a month after the restoration was placed, get a radiograph to make sure that there was no cement visible uh, and everything looked good, get a baseline burn level. And then, so, you know, go see your dentist for, uh, from now on, I don't need to see you back unless there's a problem. And I would get these patients sent back to my practice 10 years later, five years later, 20 years later, whatever it may be, with like 50% bone loss around the implant or, or 90% implant, uh, bone loss around the implant. And I would call the dentist and say, uh, how long is this going on? How long has this bone loss been occurring? And they said, oh, like the last five years, we've been watching it. <laughs> and so I thought, oh my God, um, you know, this is my reputation out there. Um, and, you know, some of my referrals obviously are fantastic dentists and on top of everything, but not everybody is so diligent. 
um, and as you know, is well versed on everything and, and educated. And so I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I am now going to see my implant patients every year, every six months at first for the first year. And then once a year, we're going to get radiographs every year. I'm going to examine them every year, check for, you know, bleeding on probing and, and pocket depths and mobility and, you know, tap it and see how it sounds and all that. Um, because somebody has been dropping the ball um, and we, we could have prevented these disasters. We could have stopped it early and saved the implant for this patient. And that was about the time when I, uh, heard about the water lays for treating peri-implantitis. And I, I think I, where was I? I think I was at the, um, speaking at the New York dental meeting and I happened to just kind of wandering around and uh, I ran into Sam Lau and we started talking and he's showing me the work that they've done and, and the, the data on using um, the laser, the water lays for treating peri-implantitis and, and peri, uh, peri-implant mucositis and the results they were getting. And I said, well, this is, this is amazing. I mean, I, if I can save some of those implants that come back, um, that come to see me, that would be fantastic. Um, I started getting peri-implantitis patients referred to me by dentists who, you know, I didn't place the implant for them. And so that really uh, helped uh, grow one, that aspect of my practice. But also, um, when I saw patients that had early periimplantitis, we treated it. We used a repair procedure to uh, to, to uh, try to eliminate the pathogens, sterilize the implant, get all the crud off of the implant, and let the let the bone regenerate. Sometimes we did bone grafting around it if we had to, um, and the success rate is you know significantly better. Um, the other thing I did was, you know, I was doing a little bit of research to see how can we prevent peri-implantitis? And I stumbled upon Jorgen Slots's uh, research and, you know, realizing that, that a water pick with a little bit of bleach in the water every day around implants makes a huge difference. And so I started my patients on that regimen uh, when, you know, when the implants ready been uncovered, you go buy a water pick. I give them a little bottle, like a three ounce bottle. I say, fill this with bleach and it comes with instructions. Use that water pick every night throughout your whole mouth. Add about eight to 10 drops of bleach uh, to that, uh, to the water pick tank. And let me see you back, you know, in six months, a year, two years, five years, whatever it is. And so I've been doing this now for like six years and the number of peri-implantitis cases I've seen has dropped precipitously. Most of the cases that come back to me are cases from before 2000, uh, 2018. So home care has become a pretty much a paramount. Home care is really important. Yeah. And, I stre- and I stress to the patients, I say, look, you paid a lot of money and put a lot of time and I put a lot of time and energy into replacing that tooth. If you want to keep this, you've got to take care of it. It's just like your car. Okay. If you, you know, you can buy the most expensive, nicest car um, on your block, but if you don't do regular maintenance and take care of it, it's it's going to fall apart. And implants are no different, except that on top of that, they're in your body. 
And so they need even extra care. So if you have a, a, a case that comes in, an implant that comes in that you place, let's say, a year ago, and it's starting to show a little bit of bleeding on probing, things of that sort, what would be your recommendation protocol? When is it that you would go into your early intervention yourself? Obviously, it, trying to get the patient to do a more optimal mm-hmm. oral hygiene, but what it, what is the criteria for you to do early intervention and what would that early intervention be? Um, basically, as soon as I see bone loss starting, I'm okay. not going to just watch it. I'm going to go in there and you know use the repair protocol, sometimes open, sometimes close technique, depending on um, how much bone loss I see and how inflamed it looks um, and not wait, not sit on it. Um, right. You know, a lot of times I'll ask the patient, well, you know, have you been water picking with bleach every day? And they'll go, well, no, not exactly. And that's it. you have to do this. Um, if you want to keep this implant healthy, um, we, you've got to do this every day. It's, it's critical. Right. And then we but treat it. A lot of times, like in the past, I remember that when implants first came out and they, we see a little bit of uh, mucositis, a little bit of uh, exudate inflammation, like I said, early bone loss. Then a while back, when they first started to look at these, they say, oh, don't flap it. Because every time you flap it, you lose a little bit of bone support around, yeah. around the implant. So therefore, mm-hmm. there's more of a risk of, of bone loss at the flap yeah. procedure. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure as you, uh, I've discovered is that's actually contrary to. Yeah. To I mean, if you don't get that schmutz out that's yes. deep around the implant, it's not going to, the process is not going to stop. You've yeah. got to completely clean it out. You got to get everything. And I do everything you know, with headlight and loops. Um, like everything now. Um, and if, you know, if I didn't do that, if I couldn't really clean things out, I don't think I'd get the results that I'm getting now where we're stopping the periimplantitis in its tracks and in, you know, some cases actually getting bone regeneration. Yeah. So, so ultimately the, the, uh, the water lays, the implant therapy is this mostly the idea of getting in there and not only kind of cleaning it out just due to the fact of the wavelength, but also reducing the inflammation, I'm assuming, yeah. to, to get in there. Yeah, and, and causing, you know, micro bleeding uh, within the, in the bone so that you get a good clot that can organize around the implant. Um, all those things that have been shown to work. Yeah. Now, do you have a preference? I bet you didn't think oral surgeons know all this. I did it. Okay, I got to tell you, I'm becoming more and more impressed with you as we're going along. I mean, because, I mean, I mean, again, Sorry, oral surgeons out there. I'm not trying to make a general statement. And mm-hmm. I do know that there's a lot of more oral surgeons out there because I've worked with a lot of them who we are working together on this mm-hmm. early intervention idea. Yeah. And, and there's more and more, by the way, there's more and more oral surgeons out there who are purchasing the water lace because they yeah. see the benefits of early intervention. Oh, yeah. And uh, rather absolutely. Than a, yeah. Rather than take a curette scalpel or anything else like that, you can go there and do basically a curatage clean out. And if you need to get access, you do minimal reflection, minimal yeah. flapping. Yeah. So, so which is great. I mean, I'm I'm very excited that you're uh, that you're uh, oh, doing the inter- early interventions. <laughs> yeah. Um. So regarding the idea, of, like, like sticking with the same topic of of the uh, of the laser therapy, is there a certain protocol that you see that you would make a determination of whether or not you would do, let's say, a flapless or conservative repair type of a uh, hmm. therapy, or you say, hey, I got to get this thing open and take a look at it. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it really depends on how much bone loss there is and how much inflammation. So if I see like one or two millimeters of bone loss that I didn't see, you know, a year ago, um, then, you know, usually I can do a closed uh, repair procedure. But if I'm seeing, you know, patients that, that I placed the implant in, you know, 15 years ago, and now they've got about 30% bone loss, I'm going to flap it open and I'm going to get 
everything out of there. And if I can, I'm going to have their dentist get the crown off and get the abutment off and put a cover screw on the implant. Um, I'm going to pack um, sticky bone around it, put a PRF membrane over it, a collagen membrane on top of that and bring everything together and let, um, let it heal. Uh, and then when everything looks, you know, four or five, six months later, if everything's looking good, then go back and re-expose the implant and put it back in function. So I, I do tend to find that there's a lot of uh, different views um, for different surgeons on when to treat, when to remove the implant. Um, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that's kind of a gut reaction at that time. Uh, yeah. But I, I think that there are more and more surgeons that if the patient is willing are would like to go ahead and try to do the, uh, the try to save it. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it really depends on, you know, which, where the implant is. Um, how compromised it is, um, what, how it's functioning. Is it part of a, an implant bridge? Is it an abut terminal abutment? You know, um, and if you lose that implant, what's that going to do for, you know, the patient's going to end up, if they had, let's say a three unit bridge, then they're going to be missing two teeth until you can get another implant in there. Um, and so, and if that's the case, you want to try to save the implant as much as you possibly can. If, you know, the patient has, let's say, you know, six implants that are splinted together on a fixed prosthesis and one of them's having problems and you can remove that one implant from underneath the bridge, you're probably better off, you know, removing it because, um, you know, the patient's going to have difficult hygiene uh, with a bridge, um, you know, not, not just on implants, but obviously with teeth too, but, um, you want to make sure that they can keep everything healthy. And if it's gotten to a point where you've lost so much bone that um, it's going to be hard to really regenerate and get this back to normal uh, health, then just take the implant out. Or if it's a, you know, if it's a single implant, um, let's say it's in the anterior um, and they've got a lot of bone loss and you've got visible threads, best thing to do is probably get it out, clean it out, graft, start over, rather than trying to, you know, save an implant that's showing, you know, three, four, five threads. That's yeah. an aesthetic issue for the patient. It seems like the, uh, the basic is the same criteria of whether or not we're going to keep a tooth, a critical tooth, uh, or go ahead and extract yeah. it. And it really, really same. Yeah. Really the same thing. Same idea and same, same concept. Mm -hmm. um, so regarding like, for instance, your water lace, and we mm -hmm. we're talking, I think that, that, that the idea of, of uh, treatment of the periimplantitis, obviously there's more that goes into it than just what we're gonna have in our discussion today. Hmm. Um, but do you find there's other procedures that you can do with your uh, with your lasers? Water lays is great for desensitizing um, aphthous ulcers. It's great for uncovering implants if you want to do it, um, you know, without a scalpel blade. Uh, it's really nice for phrenectomies also. Uh, it's a little slower than using CO2, um, but uh, it does the job very well. And patients tend to have less discomfort and less swelling using the, the uh, water lays compared with a CO2 laser. Um, there are a lot, of a lot of indications. I have the uh, Epic 10 um, laser also, which is a diode. And what I use that mostly for is I have the handpiece um, that, you know, the big fat one, and I use it for... Um, uh, photobiomodulation. And so if I've got a difficult you know, wound healing, especially one where I've had to put, you know, PRF in, uh, I may use that to stimulate. And then if I get 
patients that either have you know some numbness after I do surgery or patients are sent to me because their dentist took out a tooth or did something and now the patient's numb. Um, I'll treat them um, with, with the Epic 10 to, and try to regenerate uh, the, the nerve function, uh, accelerate nerve function because you know, it's stimulating um, DNA replication uh, or mRNA replication rather. And it helps bring back a better uh, result. I mean, I'm seeing um, even patients who've been numb for a year that are sent to me, I'm seeing some improvement because, you know, as we know, these, you know, nerve repairs um, are not 100% successful and sometimes the patients end up worse off. And um, the uh, photobiomodulation is worth a try. You know, I do three treatments, three weeks apart, and most of the patients see at least some improvement where they are much happier after we do that. So that's another uh, great use for the uh, laser in the office. Um, and let's see, what other lasers do I have? I think, I think that's the three that I have right now. So what's great about the fact, which is just to say a matter of fact, Dr. Lau's very most common, famous comment is, you tell me what procedure you want to do, and I'll tell you the best laser to go ahead and utilize it. And I mm -hmm. think that you're pretty much presenting right now is that that there are different lasers out there for different types of treatments. Right, yeah. Um, There's different absorption by different tissues, right. some, you know, by hemoglobin, some water, right. um, you know, some uh, melanin. They're yeah. all a little bit different what they, what they uh, um, act on. And so you got to use the right laser for the right job at the right settings. And have the right skills and techniques. I mean, like we, we, before we started the podcast, you and I were having a discussion about the CO2. So when the CO2 first came out in the early, I guess it was 2000 or so, yeah. I took a class or course on it. And the part that actually I gained a lot of appreciation for is once it's through cutting the tissue you're going, it will find the next tissue and continue to go ahead and cut. So, yeah. I mean, it was very efficient, wonderful, great at cutting, yeah. but it didn't know when to stop. And so yeah. part you, of it you've is- You've got to know when to stop it. You've got to have yeah. control of that. you got to yeah. know what to do. So I think yeah. that that when when the, like first of all, the wireless came out for me, there may be areas I would want to go ahead and, and cut soft tissue, but I thought, yeah, this is, you know, taking a CO2 is a little bit mm -hmm. more, it's like, uh, taking a uh, a blowtorch to uh, to try to like a uh, light a uh, light a cigarette or something, but anyway, it's just like like it was too much for me. But having like a little bit more detail of the water lays worked out great. And yeah. so so, but like you said, it depends upon the wavelength and which you end up trying to do and yeah. trying to end up achieving. Yeah, and using the lowest effective setting. Yes. So yeah. you do the least peripheral uh, tissue damage. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that's the one thing I always like to try to get across and when do the trainings, mm -hmm. start off low. You can always yeah. go higher. Don't try to go over and just blast everything away. Yeah. It's, and then once I've gone through the mucosa uh, or through the, through the, uh, um, the oral mucosa, the deeper tissues require less laser energy to, to cut through them. And so I'll turn it down. Right. And so you got you got to remember to do things like that. That's why, like when, on the repair protocol, there are different settings for different activities for you know deepothelialization, uh, de for debriding the pocket, debriding the implant, um, making those little micro, micro perforations. Uh, they're all different settings, different wavelengths, um, different energies, because each combination of those will do something different. It'll act differently on the tissues. It was fun is it is try the different settings. You know, I mean, start off low and then you go up a little bit higher and just kind of go there. But that's what the initial training is. I'm sure that, that you yeah. got also, too, is, is when yeah. you learn actually, how to. Yeah, actually, Dr. Lau came to my office and, and spent the day with us. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was nice. We had a good day.
Oh, that's that's so cool. That's great. And so it's, it's funny because we're talking. I had a buddy of mine who uh, we're talking about the different types of lasers. And and like, for instance, we all know that you never want to really want to use a pigment seeking laser on an implant because it would heat it up. Yeah. Um, and a while back, that, he- by the way, is a good technique if you want to remove an implant. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you, heat up the you implant. Super, you heat the implant, wait a couple of days and it falls right out. Yeah, it does. But you got to be careful. Otherwise, if you heat it up too much, it's going to pretty much burn everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, I had a friend of mine who actually he ended up getting the, the water, laser implant, uh, water laser laser just for implants for decontaminating them. Yeah. And and when he, he purchased it, I, he would take a two by two gauze and probably like once a week, he would send me a picture of two by two gauze with all this junk that he got off the implant surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I again, I, we, I always talk about the aha moments, um, and which, which we kind of briefly talked about. And uh, I... For him, he said that was an aha moment. Of mm-hmm. in the past, he'd have to go ahead and scrape on the implant itself, but just having like the energy to break up the uh, contaminants on the implant, um, yeah. and actually see, visually seeing it was was great and wonderful mm-hmm. for him to yeah. have. Yeah, for sure. And as like mm-hmm. you said, I think that we just you know, I mean, um, as we utilize it, we see more uses that we can go ahead and utilize for. Them. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we you know, it's a you got to remember that a laser is nothing more than a tool that allows you to do a particular procedure better or more efficiently. Um, There's nothing you can do with a laser that you can't do with a scalpel and a curette or a scissor or something. Um, It just makes it less invasive and and, uh, sometimes quicker. Um, So you have to think of it that way as a tool. It's It's not a panacea, it's only a tool. Right. And I'm sure you've had those times and maybe you're doing a procedure and you go, this is taking too long, but on the opposite end of it, you're having less bleeding, less trauma. Yeah. So what you normally have to do for suturing or, or get control yeah. of the bleeding, you don't have to do it. So in the long run, yeah. it actually made the procedure go a little bit shorter. A little yeah. Bit I mean, when I, when I remove like a fibroma, let's say, right. Um, I pick it up um, and kind of stretch out the stock and take the laser and just go zip right across um, do a little bit of uh, like a little laser char layer, and it takes you know three minutes, uh, no sutures. Patient has a great easy recovery. Uh, I tell him it'll look like a canker sore for a few days and go away. Um, and so that that makes that whole process a lot a lot easier. Uh, you don't have the bleeding, you don't have to suture, and same thing with phrenectomy. Um, you know, you obviously you're supposed to do it in the midline where it's relatively avascular, but um, you know sometimes it's hard. To prevent bleeding it you know yeah and doing it with laser you don't get the bleeding yeah it is amazing too how many patients afterwards just talk about how great of an experience was compared to maybe what they had in the past my father was a periodontist mm-hmm. um and he started in 1961 and so all of his surgeries were pretty much just all grinding on the bone the whole bit and uh when i took over his maintenance patients they some of them need to have surgery again and they said mm-hmm. absolutely not there's no way i'm gonna go through yeah. that ever again yeah and so I said, well, let's try to utilize the laser. And they go, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. Yeah. So, uh, so thank goodness we have that, that technology to go yeah. and, and have yeah. a b- better. Yeah, it works out. that way for something. I, you know, when I bought my CO2 laser in like 1998 or whatever it was, um, one of the reasons I got it, I was doing a lot of sleep apnea and I wanted to be able to do LAUP, laser system paloplasty. Yeah. Um, because a UPPP was such an invasive procedure and, and uh, patients were miserable uh, and sometimes they were worse off. Um, so, you know, laser is going to be a little more gentle. You do it in like two or three sessions and, um, uh, it's much easier on the patient. You can do it in the office. 
Um, and what I found was uh, no matter how gentle you tried to be, it hurt. Yeah, yeah. I have patients come back and go, you know, I'm a little bit better, but there's no way you're going to do that a second time. (laughs) And I think that's where the key key is. We always say it's it's actually easier on the patients. You still got to let them know this. It's not going to be like, like, you know, a painless procedure. I mean, it's still sore, but maybe not to the degree that we had before. Right. So exactly. Well, listen, thank you so much for uh, for for being here today. Oh, you're um, welcome. I really appreciate all your input. This has been great. This has been wonderful. Um, out of just if, if you have any comments about to our listeners out there of uh, maybe thinking about uh, laser therapy, do you have anything you want to share? Um, I don't know. I think we kind of went over everything. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity for you, like I said, to invite me to your podcast. Um, you know, one thing I love to do is educating dentists who are out there on better ways to do things, uh, new things that they can do, and laser technology definitely fills the bill for that. And so I'm happy to, to share my experience with, with you. And it really is great to have a neurosurgeon involved. I think that uh, I've always said that, that the, the, the dentists that I respect the most are the neurosurgeons because you guys are always have to face the most traumatic, difficult situations. And the fact that, yeah. you know, you find the, the advantage of laser therapy in your field is is great to hear. So again, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for being oh, with us. Welcome. Uh, and so for those of you out there who are interested in uh, courses on laser therapy, um, including the treatment of perimucositis and periimplantitis, Biolase has an excellent resource of live seminars, classroom trainings, and even virtual trainings. You can find them by going on to education.biolase.com. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us on the Advancing Dentistry podcast. Again, we are always coming up with great subjects in the future, so hopefully you'll uh, turn into some more exciting ones in the future. Until then, cheers, everyone. podcast. Opinions expressed are those of individual doctors and do not necessarily represent BioLace. Please refer to your individual state governing bodies for laws pertaining to laser usage. To learn more about WaterLace all tissue and Epic Diode laser technology, visit biolace.com forward slash podcast.